Today, we are in 1 Corinthians 5, and I'll cover verses 1 through 5. It's a I spent a lot of time because this is considered a difficult passage. Some of the terminologies uh, lends itself to different ways of seeing it. But I think we can get the basic idea, understand what God said, and make applications. And that's the point of our sermons. So the title, Immoral, Arrogant, and No Mourning, Discipline Needed. There's uh, the title of a seeker-sensitive sermon, if I ever saw one. I say that a uh, little tongue-in-cheek because when you go verse by verse to the Bible, you run into passages that are typically skipped. So here we go to verse 1, and I'm using the ESV because it seemed to follow the Greek as well as any. In some cases, it had wording that I thought is what I needed to bring out. 1 Corinthians 5, 1, ESV, and now as we're going to this new chapter, Paul says this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for helping us. Um, understand and learn and avoid things that would bring dishonor to you. And may we have strength and wisdom to live in a way that would be bring praise and honor to your name and avoid the sort of things that you warn us about. And we thank you for the opportunity to gather together and look at your word and believe it and apply it. In Jesus' name, amen. So this situation... This isn't come under every fact will be determined by two or three witnesses because as we see that um, the church in Corinth had a lot of problems. And in this case, the fact's not disputed because they're puffed up. The group is puffed up, meaning arrogant. Look at what we get by with. And so Paul, knowing this is the fact, writes a very strong rebuke to the situation in the church and calls for a particular sort of judgment, which will give us an opportunity to learn some things about what it means for there to be church discipline and what it means to be turned over to Satan. So here, there is sexual immorality among you. Now, the word is a general word. I have it on my slide there, pornea. And it's a term for sexual sin as defined in the Bible. We realize that various pagan cultures will tolerate certain things or change the definition of sin. But this is so bad that even most pagans wouldn't go for it. And what's happening here is a man is involved with his father's wife, in this case, probably a stepmother. That's the general consensus among the scholars. And we'll look at a passage. You see that it's listed there, Leviticus 18.8. Let me cite that. Leviticus 18.8. You must not expose the nakedness of your father's wife as your father's nakedness. And in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you have gune pater su, woman 
of your father. And literally it says here, woman of the father. So that's probably a reference to that passage. And as we see in the next verse, we're going to see the fact that they didn't think this was a big problem. And I'll explore some of the possible reasons why they wouldn't see it as a problem. It probably had to do with being a respecter of persons. Actually, is a translation of a word that is in the Greek, and used somewhat like we use it. Actually, we use that word in English to to say you wouldn't expect this. This isn't how it should be. Actually, look what's happening. How could this be? How could this be named among churches? And so Paul is disgusted with this, and he's going to deal with it as the apostle who had spent 18 months in Corinth. It's not that they hadn't received good teaching, but they were prone to going astray. Now, I'm going to cite some scholars here. I really worked long and hard on this sermon to make sure I understood the text and understood the issues. One of the best commentaries I've ever read on First Corinthians is by Dr. Gordon Fee, and he helped me years ago when I first received his commentary when it was written in the late 80s, and now there's an updated version. He says this, What cannot be known is what had happened to the father, whether there had been divorce or death. In either case, what is forbidden by all ancients, both Jewish and pagan, is the cohabiting of father and son with the same woman. Dr. Gardner says this, from Paul's perspective, however, from that of the converted Jews in the church, sexual immorality, pornea, had a broader meaning, working within the framework for sexual relationships provided by Scripture, immorality referred to any sexual behavior outside of heterosexual marriage as indicated by creation itself, by the Mosaic Law. That's a long way of saying marriage is between a man and a woman and as ordained by God. So I'm going to make some comments about this. So this is a stepmother and an ongoing, unrepentant situation. Thus, Paul addresses it with a strong rebuke. This is likely well known so that the facts are not in dispute, as the next verse will show. I have another statement I want to read in my notes here that I wrote. Pagans... Is a here is a translation of ethnos, which are those to whom the gospel is to be preached. We were talking about that in Sunday school. When the church tolerates what even the pagans typically do not, then the gospel witness is compromised. And this has sadly become so much the case in our own country that it was, it's no wonder that when people hear the word church, just about anything and everything may come to mind. And 
th that's a problem, and I'll, I'll cite some things about that later. Before we discuss what is valid in the church, we need to define the church. Eric was talking about that in Sunday school. The church are those who are called out of the world, converted through Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and redeemed, forgiven of sins, new creations in Christ, and are under the authority of Scripture. And the redeemed who gather the church are those who desire to live for Christ. And though not perfected, one of the things that happens when we come to Christ is we hunger for God to change us even more, that we be more like Christ. And so when church becomes anything goes and we're proud of it, then we no longer have biblically defined church. And that was the danger here. Thus, Paul is issuing this strong rebuke. Another passage I want to cite, Deuteronomy 27:20. Cursed be the one who lies with the wife of his father because he has dishonored his father's bed and all the people shall say amen. That's in that curse formula. Let's go to verse 2. Now here's the real shocker. And you are arrogant. So there's three th key words. I have that listed on my slide. You're arrogant. The word there literally puffed out. We saw that before in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Puffed up, inflated. Ah, you'd not rather to mourn. Let him who has done this be removed, literally lifted up and out from among you. Rather than puffed up, lifted up, out. Now, why would mourning be the proper response? Because those who know the Lord and love Jesus Christ because he first loved us, and we want our lives to more reflect who he is and what he's done and the fact that we're serving him, that this is a situation that evidently they took pride in is utterly shocking because when any of us fail, Christians fail, but we acknowledge what the truth is and what we want God to be doing to change us, we do mourn because we don't, we don't rejoice in the failure of any fellow Christian. So the puffed up here is indicating, well, this is okay in this case, we'll go with it. And it really wasn't. So they should mourn, but they're not. And there's a purpose clause in the Greek, hina, often denotes purpose, removed. And we'll, we'll talk more about that. I have a prepared statement I made here in my notes. Arrogant is puffed up, which is used in 4.6 and 4.18. In the context of inflated self-importance, pride in their spiritual status easily leads to allowing sin and not seeing it as such. We have seen many cases of this in church history, and the problem continues. Problem continues. In 1 Corinthians 6.12, there's a slogan. 
Let's see that when I get to 1 Corinthians 6. They had a slogan in Corinth. All things are lawful. Not so. All things are lawful. Paul will deal with their slogan. They have a spirituality that fails to grieve over such a horrible evil in their midst. Frankly, spirituality and status based on who's greater, who's more spiritual, who's the great person of God, even in our own lifetime, has led to some very famous situations where people are are living in ways that should be considered disgraceful, but they're just proud about it. It's happened with TV preachers. It's happened in famous groups and so on. And sometimes you wonder, the prophet said, my people don't even know how to blush. Maybe learning how to blush would be a good start. This isn't good. Let me cite Jeremiah 23, 10 and 11. For the land is full of adulterers. The land mourns because of a curse. The pastures of the desert are dry. Their evil has been their way of running, and their power is not right. For both prophet as well as priest are godless. Even in my temple, I have found their wickedness, declares Yahweh. Now, Israel in the Old Testament was a covenant community. And they were to represent God, the promises of God, that a Savior would come. And they had prophet that would speak. Jeremiah spoke authoritatively for God and had the same situation there where they weren't even seeing the need for things to change. Let's go to verse 3. Now, Paul, the apostle... As I said, spent 18 months in Corinth and was very important. There had been a previous letter. We'll get to that later. And he's very concerned. So here's what he says, 1 Corinthians 5, 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment of the one who did such a thing. So speaking authoritatively for God, Paul, the founder of that church, and the one who had discipled many there, personally, pronounces judgment. And uh, we'll talk about what he means as if present. Some would translate that differently. On the next slide, I'll explain what I think the best understanding of how Paul is present, though he's not present. It's not soul travel. We don't believe in that. I don't remember what group does that, but there's some cult that, that teaches soul travel. But this has a more basic meaning than something odd like that. So uh, I pointed out in my notes here, this apostle, Paul, speaks authoritatively for God. The church had failed to act, but they must act. And, and I think... As I've read uh, probably more sources than I normally would for, for a sermon, one thing that comes up as this is analyzed in a bigger context of, Cor- of First Corinthians and the issues in Corinth, social standing was probably why they're puffed up. 
In other words, someone important with money or clout or status is claiming rights to live a certain way that they probably wouldn't tolerate from just an ordinary person. Now, we can understand the pagans being like that. Don't we see that all the time? Whole set of different rules for the people who are important, the people that have power, the people that are uh, considered too, too important or too big to be questioned. But could that be allowed in the church? That if you're important, then the rules are different for you? People with clout get by with behavior that others would not. And by the way, that's not something someone should ever want. To be a person who isn't given special privileges and is held into account and is faced with this uh, discipline is really a blessing from God. It's a blessing from God that we're required to ask him to help us. And uh, at some point, I decided to not do that in this sermon because of time. I, we need to go into Hebrews where it talks about the discipline of the Lord. Uh, being disciplined is what sons are under. And we want to be disciplined. To have a father who says, okay, I know you can do better, and I expect it from you, and you're not going to get by with less, is a blessing. But those who say, yeah, I'm important, I can do whatever I want, are in big trouble. Now let's go to verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. Now here we're talking about the assembled congregation. Now, the word assembled soon ago here in a passive participle, having been brought together. In its essence, that's what the church is. Eric was talking about that in Sunday school. When people are born of God, believe the gospel, are part of the family of God, and brought together, that we have something in common. Even if before, it wasn't like that. That song we sang reminded me when I was a brand new Christian. Before I was converted, there's no way I would be in a church where people are praising God and singing and getting to heaven and being as the Christians were in the little church where I first was born of God. But I was part of that and I wanted to be there because now I wasn't the same person having been born of God having been converted. And so the church, the gathered church, there's a divine passive here. Having been brought together, present passive, the perfect passive participle, having been brought together. That's in Matthew 18, 20. In fact, turn to Matthew 18 and verse 20. It's certainly pertinent there in the context about church discipline. Here it says assembled, a passive participle. 
this is a divine passage by God, by God. He brings together the church. And that is so profound. And I bet most people have experienced this if you've ever traveled. But I noticed that if I'm clear somewhere else, which I haven't been much lately, traveling, preaching somewhere, it's in Barbados, preaching, Cincinnati, wherever you might go and whatever sort of church you might be in, the people who know God and love the truth, you have a kinship with immediately, even though the customs may be totally different. And that is the work of God because we have the, the reality of being part of the family of God. So they're assembled as a gathered church. Now, Matthew eighteen twenty, for where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. So Jesus, who ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God, is said to be present in the midst of even two or three gathered in his name. And again, there's a passive participle. So God is the one who brings Christians together, the assembled congregation. So I'll make a statement that I hope explains well what it means that Paul is there with them, even though he really wasn't. This is from my notes that I wrote. The statement that Paul will be present when they assemble likely refers to when the letter is read and Paul thus speaks with authority. See, when the apostle sends a letter, they read it aloud to the congregation. That's probably what he's referring to. If indeed the gathered church accepts Paul's judgment and authority and agrees, then the authority of the Lord Jesus is brought to bear, which which is a good and necessary thing. And then the church discipline is done, and that's the desired outcome. We'll talk about that more in the next verse. I'm going to cite a couple scholars. Why do that? Let me tell you why. The thing that harms people in evangelicalism is an anti-scholastic bias. Oh, no, we don't want scholarship. We don't want to learn. We just want to go by the seat of our pants. And that's a fancy way of saying, keep them dumb, keep them in the dark, and then you can harm the church. Preachers have done that for centuries. An educated congregation that knows how to think critically is a congregation protected from leadership that would possibly go astray. So I believe that scholarship is important and that we want to learn and we want to understand how to really uh, embrace the whole counsel of God. Dr. Thistleton, by the way, who has a fantastic commentary, says this, the model function of assembled together Qualifying the whole makes the speech act not simply an individual act of Paul, but a corporate act of the whole community, explicitly including Paul as the apostolic focus of unity and order. So it's read. They all hear it. They all know what he said. They all know what judgment he made. 
and they are forced to decide, is this person who's living in this sort of sin and we're puffed up about, is this bad enough that we're going to forget about social status and take action and do what the apostle told us in the authority and name of Jesus Christ? That's what it does. It creates a crisis where something needs to happen. Again, Gordon Fee says this, Thus, the present assertion of his actual presence by the Spirit probably harkens harks back to the arrogance who say that he's not returning, 418. To the contrary, Paul says, I am present among you in spirit, whereby I speak this prophetic word of judgment in your midst, which he presupposes will occur as the letter is read out loud to them. So they're assembled, they hear, they hear what God said through their apostle, whose authority, by the way, also know was questioned. We'll get to that in chapter 15. But he did, he was sent by God, and they are faced with something that needs to happen. Now let's go to verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, I'll tell you right up front, this is not an easy verse. <laughs> when I was looking at what all has been said about this in church history, the various phrases, what does it mean, how could it be, uh, how do you deliver somebody to Satan? And the word for destruction can mean death, but I don't think it means physical death because the purpose is that there be salvation. It's not teaching purgatory, I'll tell you right now. So, spend an awful lot of time on this, and I believe that we can understand the point. And where this ends up really cements for me what I've been saying for a long time is the idea of two domains. There's a domain of Christ and the gospel being under him in the domain of darkness in which the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Okay? So to be under the evil one is just to be an ordinary person walking through life. Nothing changes. Everyone, the whole world lies in the power of darkness. To be under the domain of Christ is to be converted. And we've talked about that a lot, especially in 1 Corinthians <clears throat> Excuse me. Especially in Colossians 1, 12, 13, and 14. So I'll talk a little more about that, and I have an application point about it. So the point here is this. Those who would rebel against what God said, live in a way God said you cannot live, and want the imprimatur of the church on that, are those who, in fact, objectively are living in the domain of Satan. So the expulsion, the lifting, and delivered over means we recognize you are living in the domain of Satan, and here's what it looks like. And the hope is that this will be a saving action that will bring the person back. The destruction of the flesh 
If we were to say, well, that means so that he would be killed and die, then that would not follow that his spirit may be saved. There's no salvation after death when you're living in sin. So this is something that would have to happen while he's still alive. And then it's talking about the later final judgment in the day of the Lord. So let me lay this out, and I'll do the best I can by God's grace to explain this. Flesh and spirit here are not anatomical, but spheres of existence. Those who live according to the flesh are dead in sin. That is an entire arena. Right now, think about this. Those who are converted, who trust Christ, who come to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, are delivered from the domain of darkness and put into the light of Christ, and they live for him. Those who are in that condition, anyone who knows Jesus, the Savior, is in the world, but not of the world. And wherever we may go in the world, there'll be others we may run into or others who may be converted and will be in that sphere of light, the Lordship of Christ, forgiveness of sins, and knowing him, even though we're in the same wicked world everybody else is in. Here's a statement, a little fuller one that I made in my notes here. Destruction of the flesh does not mean death because the point of this discipline is to bring about repentance. Destruction is contrasted with may be saved. Two possible outcomes. Destruction, in order that, may be saved. And so being turned over to Satan would be the purpose of being saved. I'm going to show you in our applications two cases that illustrate that. At the, Lord, at the Last Supper, there's an issue with Satan with two different people, Judas and Peter. We're going to look at that in a bit. And the outcomes were different. I hope this makes sense. We'll keep working on it here. I didn't choose the verse. The verse chose me. It was time to come to this and deal with it. Um, so uh, Satan's influence in bringing a good outcome is seen in Paul's thorn in the flesh, as mentioned. Now, go ahead and turn to this. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9. Now, in this case, this was directly, this wasn't church discipline, but it illustrates how God used a messenger of Satan, thorn in the flesh, for the greater good and what it was about. And I think you see a connection. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me, divine passive, a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Why? To keep me from exalting myself. Notice that's repeated, so therefore it's emphatic. What is the danger 
that faces every Christian that'll shoot down somebody in their life. It's pride and self-exaltation, the very original sin in the Garden of Eden. You should be like God. You don't have to listen to God. You can do it your own way. Now here, the one already converted, Saul of Tarsus, Paul, has some sort of messenger from Satan for the express purpose of keeping him from exalting himself. Verse 8, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Verse 9, and he said to me, or has said, that be in the past, here's a principle that he knew, he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. It was for his be- better interest that it would be like this. Now, we're going to see another illustration of this with Peter as we go into our applications. Now, I believe the contrast between the flesh and the spirit are spheres of, of, of how a person is oriented, oriented toward God, salvation, forgiveness, his will, living for him, or oriented toward self, flesh, self-exaltation, and all of that. So um, that, I believe, is to domain. So Satan is the agency. The point is that we're not lost on that final day, that we might be saved. Again, I'm going to make a statement. This one I prefer to cite a scholar because it's pretty easy to see, and I'm glad someone else saw this. I'll, I'll, I'll cite Gordon Fee twice here. What Paul was desiring by having this man put outside the believing community was the destruction of what was carnal in him. So they might be saved eschatologically. That means in the end time, in the final judgment. Back to feet. In this case, as most often in Paul, flesh and spirit designate the whole person as viewed from different angles. Spirit means the whole person oriented toward God. Flesh means the whole person oriented away from God. It was a walk in the flesh, cannot please God. It was a walk in the spirit, or seeking to please God. And that's what's at issue. Fee again says this. Finally, the great problem with such discipline in most Christian communities in the Western world is that one can simply go down the street to another church Not only does that say something about the fragmented condition of the church at large, but also says something about those who would quickly welcome one who is under discipline in another community. Continuing with fee, maybe the most significant thing we can learn from such a text is how far many of us are removed from a view of the church in which the dynamic of the spirit was so real that exclusion would be a genuinely 
redemptive process, unquote. If we are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, if the word of God is taught with clarity, and if we admonish and encourage one another, and we put ourselves, by God's grace, under the authority of Scripture, the redemptive power of sanctification is at work. God is changing us. How often have I heard Eric preach on something in Matthew as he's been going through the sermon, the, the statements in the sermon there in Matthew 7? I'm thinking, wow, I did, that's something that needs to change in my life. I may be the only one, I don't. I doubt it. But when we hear the truth of the word, we're, we're thinking, if God can change us, he will. I, I need this. So then, here's my statement. What is being destroyed by the man's sin is the temple of God. What's that? The church. 1 Corinthians 3.17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Previously, 1 Corinthians 3.17. One more statement. When I was... Uh, studying in seminary, and as that time, when I graduated, from then on, I met Eric a few years later when things had gotten even worse. The trend was this, that there's no future judgment. That's what some people eventually brought in. Everything's evolving toward heaven on earth without judgment. We can't have categories. There's no hell. Everything is going to get better and better in the whole world. And that was this emergent, now they call it convergent spirituality. Ended up writing a book about that. But if that's the case, and if church is about, we're all on this journey with all the world religions and we're heading toward a, a better future with no judgment and, and the good Lord is going to just make it all work out then we have no clue what Paul's talking about. This, these verses can't even register. They have nothing to do with what people are hearing. And the, the, the sermons become better living through religion, better uh, way of being happy and so on. And when you hear that and see that, I want to feel uneasy when I hear the word of God taught because I know that God will help me. It's not a blessing to remove discipline. I thank God I had a father who didn't give me the easy way out. I was the oldest son and I was going off to study chemical engineering at Iowa State. And there, when I got there in high school, A's, B's, don't do any more work than you have to. If it's a good class I like, I get an A. If it's a class I don't like, I get a B. If it's a really worthless class, oh, who cares? C. Get to Iowa State, I started doing the same thing, and my grades were horrid. First half, the first quarter, I thought, I'm failing. How, how can this be? My dad wouldn't let me have a car the first year. Even though I owned a car, I had to leave it at home. Why? Because he knew what I would do if I had the car, go run off here and there. I begged to ride home from another student, 
got home, I remember where we stood. My dad was standing out in the hog yard in the west end of the, the farm, the main part where the barns and buildings were. I remember this, I'll never forget. I said, Dad, these engineering students from, are from all over the world. Iowa State's a big engineering place. They're smarter than me. And they are getting better grades and stuff. I don't think I can cut it and um, teach me how to be a farmer. And I thought he'd be happy about that. And he rebuked me. He said, no, no, no. I don't believe that for one minute. You're as able as anybody else there to study. I'm not going to do that. I won't say what he said because it's inappropriate. Um, but you get back there and study. And you prove that you can actually do it. And I thought, oh, my. So I did. I went back and I started pulling all night or Friday night, Saturday night, all weekend. By the end of the quarter, I was getting A's. Now, would I have been better off if I had a dad who said, well, everybody's just got to find their own way. We don't believe in discipline. And just kind of let me go. Whom the father loves, he disciplines. It says in Hebrews. And I was able to share that story at his funeral. I'm glad somebody said, no, we expect more. That's what Paul's doing to this church. No, this is not Christian. We expect more. Deal with it. And that'll be a redemptive thing. If you are a Christian, God will give you the grace to do what you need to do to honor him. And he uses means including the means of his word and even church discipline. And frankly, the fact that we could go anywhere and hear whatever we want and probably never be told that anything needs to change, it's not a blessing, it's a curse. Because it will never will change. Just sink to the lowest common denominator and be lost. One application. The purpose of church discipline is to provide motivation for the offender to return from the sphere of Satan to that of Christ and his own. And to that end, we start with Acts 26, 18, and then we'll have two uh, very simple illustrations, and that's going to be Peter, or first Judas, and then Peter. Two different outcomes in the same scenario there of the Last Supper. Acts 26, 18, now... This is Paul recounting before a civil authority what Jesus said to him when he called him and sent him. So this is what Paul received directly from Jesus Christ himself. Acts 26, 18. This is what his ministry is about. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. That's what Jesus said that God would do, that he would do through Paul. So the gospel isn't about better living through religion. 
The gospel isn't about, well, there's lots of different religions. Let's do the one that sounds nice. The good Lord would never judge anybody. I heard that, by the way, in liberal church where I grew up. The good Lord would never send anybody to hell. And I thought, okay, then I'm not going to go to church. I'll go do what I want to do until the Lord intervened. So look at what it says here. If you are living for yourself, not serving God, do not know God, you're not sure what's true, Jesus Christ is who he claims to be. God, second person of the Trinity, God the Son, the one who was virgin born, who created the whole world, according to John 1, 1 through 18, came into our world, lived a sinless life, predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, did many miracles to prove he's indeed the Messiah, God, incarnate, was raised on the third day, as he predicted, and appeared to many witnesses, and who bodily ascended to heaven and is coming again to judge the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. That is who he is. So to believe upon him and trust him, says here in this verse, turn from darkness to light. When I was converted on July 18th, 1971, it was so obvious that darkness was all I was experiencing and believing and doing, and the light of God's mercy flooded my heart, my mind, and my soul. And the guys I was working with knew that I'd changed, even though I didn't say anything until the last break that we had. What happened to you? Well, I came to Christ because I had been breathing out threats as well against Christians. From dominion of Satan to God. Now, a lot of people don't believe there is a Satan. They just think that's mythology. You don't have to believe there's a Satan to be living under the domain of dominion of Satan. I knew that. I remember the day I was saved, my father-in-law was waiting in the house to see what was going to happen. I, we, we weren't married at the time he became my father-in-law. He had already come to Christ. So he said, what happened? I said, I accepted Christ. Turned out he accepted me, but that's how I said it. And my father-in-law, who, be, who became my father-in-law, said, Satan will, get, will launch a counterattack. And you know what I said? Well, I just came to believe in Christ. No, I have to believe there's a Satan. I didn't believe anything. And he said, well, you'll find out soon enough. Well, the fact is, um, cling to Christ so you don't end up in a bad situation. Notice this, forgiveness of sins. The word for forgiveness, uh, a fee of me or a faceless means release. We were in bondage to sin. He released us if we trust him. We're not sinless, but we're released and we can walk in the spirit and we can live in that realm and not in the dominion of Satan. Inheritance, kleros or kleromia is a lot that's there for people as an inheritance. Those who trust Christ have a lot, an inheritance that is shared by those who know him. 
It's eternal inheritance. It will be part forever, the family of God. That's the point of this passage, that he may be saved on that day and have an inheritance. So church discipline would be back under Satan. All right, you want to live in darkness and bondage? That's what you're going to get. Hope for outcome. Wake up call. I need Christ. I'm repenting, turning from this, and I'm going to come back and submit and love Christ by his grace. It's not being too harsh. This is a wicked sin that was going on here. It needed to change. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 14 was the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's the outcome. But if their outcome doesn't happen because the person refuses to change, Ephesians 5, 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous and idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Today, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, trust him, believe in him for forgiveness of sins and an eternal inheritance in the Lord who he's promised to all who believe in him. And it doesn't matter who you were, whether you had status, whether you had money, whether you were a horrible, wicked sinner, or just kind of an ordinary person. Once we are converted, we have entire, entirely different status, sons and daughters of the king, and the hope of eternal life. Now, these last two, I don't have any sub-points, but I, I need to get to this. This helps more people understand apostasy versus church discipline and redemption. There's a mention of Satan, Luke 22, where we have the Lord's Supper and some other things that happen that Jesus interacts with his disciples. Look at Luke 22, 3 through 5. It's on the slide here. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him, that is, Jesus, to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. Judas, Satan entered, ran away, and he betrayed Christ, took the money, and that was his doom. It was wicked. That was one outcome. Judas never came back. He never asked for forgiveness. Let's go one more here. What about Peter? Look at this one. This one blows me away. It gives, this is what we want to remember. All of us will look at ourselves and say, I've failed so many times as a Christian. May God do something in my life. I want him to change me, keep me. 
Luke 22, 31, 32. Simon, Simon. Same chapter. Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Now, I, I suppose he's thinking, well, you didn't give it to him, did you? Well, we know that he did. So he has to ask permission. But I have prayed for you, Jesus said, that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Judas ran out and betrayed Jesus for money and died. Peter, now if you read, read on from this, he'll say, no, that won't happen. So he was still thinking he could handle it. No, even if everybody else fails, I won't. I'll be right there. Well, he betrayed him before a little servant girl who really posed no big threat to Peter. And then he saw what had happened, but he was turned again. He did come back. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, whatever God allows by way of difficulties and just things that we need, he will use that to perfect you, to confirm the truth, to give you the power to be different. And I promise you, we need one another. And we need the Lord to keep us as we assemble so we hear the word of God and pray for one another and reach out to one another because it's guaranteed the world hates us if we teach the truth. So there are two outcomes. And thank you for allowing me to preach in this manner, a difficult section, but it's there for our good. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord for your goodness and kindness, for your mercy, and that you have delivered all of us from any difficulties and failures. And may your discipline have its desired work that we might cling to you, not be exalted, and trust in you. And Lord, even if one or two today believe in you for the first time, may they know that they're forgiven and have a desire to be part of the family of God. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your word and for the fellowship we have with you and one another. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.